0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is
1: my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today, we got a QA. and a We got a lot of questions from Facebook. We've been getting a lot of those in the uh, Tailored Life Podcast Facebook form. So if you are listening to this and you want to join that group, there's a lot of people interacting in there, and it's a great little group. So, and it's uh, free. Yep, well, (coughs) just answer the questions when you uh, submit to join the group. If you don't answer anything, I'm going to decline you. (laughs) So just answer something that we know that you're not just not listening. Exactly. That way we
0: know you're not a robot. If you don't know my favorite TV show, that's fine. Just throw something in there. If you don't know throw something funny. It's Seinfeld. Yeah. Well, there you go. It is Seinfeld. So if
1: you're listening to this episode, you better
0: have the right answer. Dude, this is uh, this, the other night was the first time me and Shannon sat there and we're like, damn, we've watched this a lot of times. Because when COVID hit, I feel like all, I don't yes. know if this happened to you guys. Because you, you, are you and Joe's like a TV no, show person? Absolutely yeah, so no. not. We don't watch many movies. We're like series. But once COVID hit, everybody stopped filming. Mm-hmm. So it was like a huge delay and then everything came out. So we watched everything. Now we're waiting for like the next season of Yellowstone, the next season of Peaky Blinders. Yellowstone's and, right now uh no that was the teaser that oh, came out and oh. I, I got super excited oh. we watched it the other day
1: so when's it coming out uh
0: october oh beginning of october so it's coming up same with peaky blinders um there's a few more that we're uh, billions just started back up billions is a great show but now it's a back to that thing where it's like one episode a week versus mm. netflix just drops them all and yep. you can just run through them but we just resort to seinfeld but it's like it's like the 20th time i've watched them and there's certain episodes that I, I never get enough of but some of them i can't lie once you see it enough times, it's like yeah, fuck. But I highly recommend nope. everybody at least go watch it. It's way better than Friends. Are you a Friends person?
1: I mean, nope. Not a TV guy. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, it's funny. But I don't think I think Seinfeld's funny too. Yeah. I just don't watch TV. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. I, so I, I
0: pulled the U last night and I watched a Joe Rogan episode on my iPad. Oh. Yeah, because I was bored as fuck and there nice. was nothing good on TV. So yeah. Shannon was watching something utilize interested in yeah. yeah yeah i have been dude i actually created a sick design Dope. i'm not gonna lie it's like a. where's it at uh it's at my house my bed oh. is um but it's a greek statue i cut the like the head's basically like broken in half like legitimately there's like a statue in greece that it's actually broken in half and then i just basically took the background out i don't know what that's called making it transparent or whatever and then there's like all these black roses coming out of its skull and then you drew this it? Like, no way no, Procreate. Oh. So you can like, basically, so I pulled this Greek statue and then I pulled black roses and I had them like, I multiplied a bunch of them, had them coming out. And then the, there's like this gold spray paint effect behind it, like shining, mm. which would be like a design for the back of a t-shirt, yeah, like a black shirt with that. But it um, looks dope. It took me like fucking four days. Damn. There's so many. Have you seen Procreate before? No. There, it's like what tattoo artists use. That's yeah. how I heard of it. But yeah. there's so many features on that shit. It's mm. like. It's probably like similar to when you start Adobe at first. Yeah. It's just like, holy shit. Yeah. There's so many different options. So I'm like trying to watch tutorials and stuff. Still not that great at it, but you would like it. It's it's a dope app. That
1: sounds dope. Um, but let's get into it. All right, let's get into it, guys. Uh, all right, we got the first uh, question coming from Carrie Hines. It says, let's talk about fear. How has it held you back in the past? Whoa. We're not going to finish nutrition on this question. Let's talk about fear. How has it held you back in the past? How did you become brave? Specific ways it has impacted your clients and what you have done to help them navigate in their fitness and nutrition journeys. There's a lot of questions in this.
0: In that that single question? No. Oh, in this Q&A session?
1: what 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 are you still afraid of? Is there anything you think is valuable to fear? Oh. And then discuss balance of education versus action in context of overcoming fear.
0: Holy shit. Okay, so you weren't done. That's no, what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> who who asked this question? Carrie Hines. Well done. Um, I like you. Want to break it down? Yeah. I mean, I like I like you already because of your last name because I'm a huge... How has fear held you back man. in the past? How has fear held me back in the past? Um, I think... If I had to... I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is is uh, simply just not taking action due to fear, right? being in scarcity, fearing whatever it is to come, just stopped my ability to actually take action on something. So, and I think that's ultimately the the biggest issue with fear, right? And something that helped me, and I'm sure we'll get to this, is that realizing that regret is more powerful than fear. Like the feeling of fear is not nearly as great as the feeling of regret. So potentially until you discover the feeling of regret, but I actually heard... Gary Vee talked about this and I don't know how much validity there is to this, but he said he did it. He went to like retirement home and he talked to a bunch of people. And the, the most common word he heard was regret, like asking people about their life, like these old people who are in, you know, the last decade of their life. And they're just, everything was always about like, I regret not doing this. Or I regret not talking to this person or doing this thing or like following this passion or whatever. So I actually had a conversation with my grandma a while back when I heard him say that. And the next time I was at my grandma's house, I was just like, what do you wish you would have done? You know, like things like that. And you hear that a lot. And it's like, damn, I don't want to get to a certain age and realize I didn't do something. I didn't take action. Right. And I regret not doing so. I regret not being where I could be because of it. And I think ultimately when you, when you feel that and you kind of compare it to fear, fear is so temporary right now. I'm from heights. So you won't catch me jumping off and doing like skydiving or anything like that. I just don't don't have any interest in it whatsoever. I think that's a different kind of fear. Um, so I think it depends on what we're talking about here, but I don't necessarily, I guess somebody could debate this. I I don't think that skydiving would necessarily improve my life, but I've heard a lot of people say that it like, for whatever reason it does, Mm -hmm. like there's something about it. You've been skydiving, so you'd be able to talk about it. But, um, I think looking at something and seeing if it's, if it's something you fear and trying to logically, not emotionally, like put yourself aside and look at what it is you're fearing and try to better define and understand what it is. Because if it is something that the fear is only temporary, right? Like speaking, public speaking, that's very temporary. If it's something that, uh, if conquered, whether you fail or win, fail or succeed in that situation, if you get over the fear and are able to repeat it or whatever, is it going to enhance your life, Mm. right? And that's the biggest thing. If you go, if you push into the resistance, into the fear, is it going to enhance your life versus if you don't, is it going to make your life worse in any way or make you stay still? To me, that is worse, not going forward. Um, But I'm kind of rambling. So the first question is, when was the time that I...
1: How has it held you back in the past and how did you become brave?
0: Okay. So how it held me back in the past is basically just not taking action. Right. Uh, when I first started, when I literally got boom, boom performance LLC, it was probably like three or four years before I even actually started the company. To be honest with you, I've owned the LLC for a long time and I just paid that yearly LLC, Washington state tax fee. Yeah. Cause I was like, Oh, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do it this time. But realistically I was afraid to leap. Now, one thing I kind of think about now is I don't even know if I was ready for it back then. So I may have been jumping the gun. So part of me is like, that was a time where fear held me back. The other part of me is like, was it a good thing? Was it fear? or Was it intuition? Like, man, yeah, I was doubting myself, but did I have reason for it? I was a younger trainer. I was a younger coach. I didn't have as much experience. Um, I didn't have as much driver purpose. When I found out I was out my daughter, obviously I had a big nudge and, and drive to do it. But I also realized that like, Now I know quite a bit. Now I have a lot of experience. Now I have more skin in the game to be able to do this. Um, So I would say fear has held me back from that. Fear has also held me back from, um, I mean, honestly, even difficult conversations. You know, uh, times in the past where I needed to have a hard, a crucial conversation with somebody, whether it's somebody in my life or somebody who's no longer in my life that I want to, like, make amends with or something like that, and I just never did because I was afraid of the conversation. You know what I mean? I can think of multiple people in that scenario. Um, but it, it all comes back to taking action. I can't think of anything else where fear has stopped me, uh, like, has limited me or stopped me besides just not taking action on the things I really want to do.
1: I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that fear does to you.
0: 100%, yeah. yeah. Unless it's something like skydiving, right? Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, so, well,
1: what... You can say
0: taking action is just yeah. going to do it. Very true. And and you know what, like now that I think about it too, like I think skydiving would change and benefit my life because it would be doing something I really don't want to do. It'd be stepping out of my comfort zone. It'd be, you know, challenging that fear because to me, like that's something I really, really don't want to do. I think I would, I mean, I would hate bungee jumping worse, but I think, uh, you did both. I, uh, I don't, I think taking that leap and doing it would make a lot of other things easier. You know, like when I think of like doing that, something I'm so afraid of, I look at everything else that I need to take action on. I'm like, this piece of cake. Yeah. Speaking in front of 100 people, I jumped out of a fucking plane. Yeah. Like, this is nothing. You know what I mean? It's a different kind of fear. Yeah. But because I'm more fearful of that than I am speaking in front of people, I think just challenging that fear that becomes a habit. Totally. Um, How I became brave, I think, is what I said like uh, determining what fear is. Is it temporary? And also, you know, this whole anxiety is my excitement. Is the fear coming from something you want? You know, if if the fear is coming from something I don't want, I I don't know how much use I'm going to get out of it, right? Um, Or that I can't see the benefit of, you know, because there's like a scary kind of fear. But there's also the fear that is mainly anxiety and it's around something you're excited about. Because like for people, I keep saying public speaking, but that's something a lot of people are very afraid of. But there's a lot of people also who really want to be able to do that. They admire the people who can, and they want to be able to speak in front of people. I was, I was not terrified, but I definitely was afraid of public speaking to an extent at first. Most people are, but I, I desired the ability to do so. You know, so you have to look at your fear and go, okay, I'm fucking terrified of this, but is that anxiety really just my excitement? Like I'm about to do something and accomplish something, and I could potentially become better at something I really want to become better at. It. Yeah. You have to stop and be able to kind of like articulate that and decide, is that what this fear is centered around, and is it temporary? Like, am I going to do this and be terrified? And then after it's done, the fear goes away and I feel accomplished. If so, then you just got to jump in. You just got to do it. Um, So I think the combination of that like logical thinking around it being temporary and it being related to something I'm actually excited about and want to do and achieve, as well as that whole regret conversation. I think when you can realize that regret is more powerful than fear, doubt, um, anything like that, FOMO, all that stuff, then... I think it's way easier to take action. I think it's way easier to do things. I I, I saw this thing Sam Miller sent it to me. It's uh, Tom Bilyeu was interviewing Logic, and Logic just came out with a book, apparently. I didn't know. Um, but he's just going off about, like, basically, if you really want to achieve something, you know, and he talked about, like, you'll skip dates, you'll skip hanging out with friends, you'll skip whatever. He was talking about, and this is crazy, and it's it makes a lot of sense by the way he raps, he was studying, like, he was like, I studied all the best rappers, and he named Nas right away, by the way, um, just from a side conversation we had. But uh, he also was like, but I also studied anatomy and biology, so I could rap about organs and systems and failure and sickness, because I needed to know these terms. I studied the dictionary. I studied the thesaurus, and he was like, going off on all this stuff, he was like, I just need to be a master of words. I was like, that is crazy, and that's yeah. dedication to your craft, which makes sense, because his lyrics are nuts. Yeah, But... But he was talking about like going all in on that. And he's like, I don't regret, you know, he didn't say these words, but you could tell by the way he's talking and it was a clip. So I want to hear the whole interview, but it's almost like, you know, I skipped out on some of these things and I don't regret it because I accomplished my dream and now I'm becoming the one of the best. And and he didn't call himself one of the best, but he's kind of like his journey to the best. And I would say he's becoming one of the best lyricists. Um, I'm not a huge logic fan, but. I'll give him that credit. But the point is is he doesn't regret that shit yeah. because he's doing what he wants to do. He stepped into that. So I think that's a lot of this as well. It's taking action. Yeah. And it's it's if if stepping into the fear and taking action, whether that is, you know, missing out on things, it's it's uh getting very uncomfortable, it's it's taking risks, all that stuff, none of that is as powerful as risk because if he wouldn't have done that or sorry, regret. If he wouldn't have done that, he'd be living in regret right now. You know, and I think that's the thing with most people. If I if I was 50 years old right now and I was looking back and I never decided to to start this company. Man, I would be so regretful and curious of like, what if? Yeah. There's nothing worse than that. Like, man, I wonder if that would have worked. I wonder if that would have happened. Totally. You know, like, probably not. Yeah. You know, there's probably also a lot of indirect things that happened because I did that that I'd be like, man, I wonder what else would have happened. I wonder who'd be in
1: my life, all those kind of things, you know? Yeah. You really never know. Totally. So, other things that if you wouldn't have done this, you may have done something else that would have led something as big or bigger that you wouldn't even think about this.
0: Exactly. You know what I mean? Very true. Very true. But I think right now, because I I agree and I think like, okay, if I didn't do that, maybe I would have done something just as big. But I don't sit here and go, what if, because I have this. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And if I did the other path, I may have, but I may have not. Yep. And then I definitely would be saying, what if, and the risk of what if is not worth it. Yeah. Fuck that.
1: All right. So the next part is one is, what are you still afraid of? And is there anything you think is valuable to fear? Um,
0: so this, I'll answer the second part first. Uh, I think there's a lot that is valuable of fear. I think fear, uh, it's kind of like one of the, you know, in, in programming they say the exercise uh, you dislike the most is the one you need to do, right? The The, the work you try to avoid is the work you need to do. Those sayings across the board It's because <clears throat> consciously and subconsciously, physically, mentally, psycholog- psychologically, everything, you avoid what is most difficult, but probably what's going to move you forward the furthest, right? So fear is not just my fear of heights. It's also a fear of discomfort. It's a fear of failure. It's a fear of what if. It's a fear of embarrassment if I fail. It's a fear of responsibility if I succeed, all these things are good, though, right? Yeah. Embarrassment, yeah, you could embarrass yourself, but realistically, the people around you aren't going to give a fuck. You're not actually embarrassed. That's, that's your own internal story, you know? Taking risk, yeah, you're taking a risk, but you're also taking a risk for a, a major opportunity. Um, every failure leads to a lesson. Yeah, if you succeed, you have a lot of responsibility because you got to keep it up, and the people around you see that you've succeeded, right? And that puts a different pressure on you, but it's a good pressure, you know? Pressure is a privilege, and that, that's another quote from another guy, but it's... I think that fear, fear is like the prerequisite of all those things. Fear comes up in all those situations. Fear comes up with any change, but change is the only path to change, to success. So fear has the benefit and the importance of, it's almost, honestly, it's kind of like a compass. It's like a North Star. Like if I'm heading in this direction and, and I often tell people this when they're setting goals, If it doesn't make you a little nervous, like a little quick, then it's not big enough, right? If I'm heading this way and there's no challenge, everything's easy. I have no discomfort. I'm not pushing the boundaries. I don't feel any pressure or risk applied to me. What am I really striving for? That's great. You know, that's going to create change. And I think that's what life's about. So I think fear is kind of a prerequisite for any success, realistically, because you're going to be afraid of what's different than what you're used to. But what is different than what you're used to is exactly where you want to go because everybody wants new, better improvement you know that's when we're humans so fear is very important now what do i currently
1: fear is that what it was yeah what are you still afraid of
0: i mean i think saying heights is a stupid thing but um
1: pretty scared of heights huh
0: i mean that's the only thing i can think of like i don't like spiders but i'm not afraid of spiders you know i don't like snakes but i'm not afraid of snakes i mean i'm sure if there was a fucking python in this office right now i'd probably freak the fuck out you know (laughs) But, like, I don't have a phobia of these
1: Maybe things. Maybe, are you, like, afraid of anything business-wise?
0: That's what I'm trying to think of, yeah. It's, like, uh, man, I mean, I could I could say, like, I'm afraid of uh, letting people down, for sure. Like, that, that's a fear, but it's also a fear that motivates me. So, it's not something that... Like, I think you get to a point where fear doesn't debilitate you anymore, right? Previously, I would have been cautious or maybe not even taken action on building a team because the fear of letting people down, right? The fear of bringing people on and then not being able to perform or provide for them, that freaked me the fuck out. But once I did it, now it's a motivation, right? That fear is actually something that pushes me to do it more. Um, and that's where I think like scare, like being scared, like a scare tactic or fear can also be a motivation uh, motivating factor. Um,
1: I don't think that's the question though. I think just because fear or being scared of something doesn't like stop you from doing it. You're still. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. That's the question. Like, yeah. I mean, letting people down is a good answer because it doesn't stop you from not doing something. But
0: I think, I think, uh, I think that's, that's, that is one for me, letting people down around me. Uh, again, cause you know, the things that matter to you most, are probably the things you fear failing, but, uh, I'm not afraid of failure as much as I am afraid of, of letting those specific people down or not being enough for those people around me. Or I would even say, like, not living up to my full potential. Yeah. You know, I even think about, and in, in just in life in general, and every aspect of like what is cause to an extent you really don't know. But like, I don't want to, and this is a gift and a curse because I think sometimes it makes it so I can't even just fucking chill on vacation or something. But like, I don't want to be off for too long. So I don't like vacations longer than a couple days because once I start getting in that mode and pulling myself away from it all, I slow down and I'm afraid of slowing down, which sounds like probably kind of obsessive, right? Yeah. And it kind of is, yeah. but it, like, I just, I don't know. I'm afraid of not maximizing. That's a cleaner.
1: I mean, yeah. That's
0: yeah. I'm afraid of not maximizing every day. I'm afraid of not maximizing what could be because yeah. that that's like, up there you know that's like this thing floating ahead of me it's like the dangling carrot that never stops dangling because you're like fuck there's more there's more there's more um and i'm afraid of my drive for that slowing down or going away there you go that's a great answer yeah i I try my best to make sure it doesn't obviously but i think that fear keeps me kind of like constantly doing things to keep that that drive going yeah
1: that's good all right well that was a
0: good question oh
1: there's more Oh, shit. We're
0: not done with this question.
1: Specific (laughs) ways it impacts your clients and what you have done to help them navigate in their fitness or nutrition journeys with dealing with fear.
0: Specific ways I've helped my clients navigate through it, basically.
1: Essentially, specific ways it impacts your clients. And what you have done to help them navigate in their fitness and nutrition j- journeys when dealing with fear.
0: fear? I think it impacts them the same way that I'm I'm talking about here. It's it's just taking action, really. Yeah. It's 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 usually fear of failure or fear of responsibility uh, that uh, of the responsibility that comes with success. So for my clients who are losing fat, changing their body, whatever, it's this this fear of if if I try and fail, everybody knows I failed, you know, if I try and succeed, now people have this higher standard for me. I have this pressure on me to, to sustain that success. Right. Um, because if, if I go for it and here's the thing is like, if you do it silently, it's not as effective. So you have to tell people that you're trying to accomplish this goal. But if you tell people, which is part of the power of accountability, now they know if you fail or fall on your face, they're going to see it. Right, But if you succeed, now they're expecting when they see you again in six months for you to still be lean, right? which is another reason why it's important to do things the right way. But usually it's a fear of failure and a fear of success from a standpoint of sustaining that success because success is a a pressure, Um, especially at first. Eventually, sustainability of what you accomplish becomes easy. There's just a learning curve. That's why you can't do quick fixes and shit. But usually it's those two things and the fear of what other people will say because People judge, you know, and and here's the thing is, and I, I wrote a post about this. It's actually, uh, I, I was looking at analytics on my Instagram yesterday. It's the m- most popular post I've ever created on Instagram ever, which is crazy. Wow. Like, I mean, it has the highest reach of anything I've ever by a oh. long, landslide. You just
1: looked at it yesterday?
0: Yeah, because I was just pulling like, you know, what content's hitting for people and, yeah. and trying to recreate some things. And uh, but it's basically the one where I said, if people judge you, you know, if people are judging you for for eating healthy and following a diet. Mm. It, it, it's, it's based on their own insecurities, right? Nobody thinks eating healthy or losing body fat is stupid. Yeah. Nobody does. Like everybody appreciates that. But when people judge you, it's because they're insecure because they see you doing it and they know that they don't have the discipline and the willpower to do it themselves. So they make fun of or they poke or they give you shit because that's that stemmed from their own insecurities, yeah. right? And that's very common, you know? Um, but people fear that. People fear that judgment, even though, you know, so here's one way I help people. If people are giving you shit about eating healthy, I explain this. Like, you really think they think it's dumb? You think they don't, uh, like, uh, uh, like, applaud or, or praise that kind of success? No, they they would love to do it themselves. They just don't have the drive, the willpower, the goal setting, the the personal investment into the journey yet. So they envy you doing it, and it creates an insecurity in them, right? It's why, like you know, some people get insecure in a room with people who are smarter than them or insecure in a setting with people who are more experienced or more wealthy or more fit or whatever it may be. You go to a a CrossFit gym with fucking CrossFit Games athletes and you're just starting week one of CrossFit, you're probably going to feel insecure, right? Is it really because those people are judging you? No, because those CrossFit Games athletes are looking at you like, man, I remember my first week. They're probably going to be cooler to you than the person that's been doing it for a few years but still isn't at their level, right? but it's that insecurity of that, that contrast between you and them, which a lot of is, is a story in your head. And then the other side of it is it, it's, it's an insecurity from them being placed on you. So I explain that scenario to them for, for those scenarios. I explain the, uh, you know, the fear of success and that being a pressure, it's a good fear. It's a good pressure. And just trying to run them through that. And then same thing with the fear of failure of number one, Nobody's nobody that you actually give a shit about or, or really gives a shit about you. Nobody in your tight circle that you care about is really judging or really worried about that or is going to do anything or judge you. I mean, they're not going to do anything negative because you failed like they care about you. You know what I mean? So kind of running them through their own scenarios and, and asking them questions like, OK, why do you feel this way? Explain it to me. And then breaking it down logically because they're in an emotional state. They're looking at this emotionally because it's happening to them. I can look at this logically because it's not happening to me. And I can break it down logically. And sometimes they need to see that because then it's like, duh, that's obvious. Um, And that's how I tend to try to steer them away from it. And sometimes use my
1: own experiences. For sure. I think it's more relatable.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: Okay, one last part of it says discuss balance of education versus action. So discuss balance of education versus action in context of overcoming fear.
0: I don't know if I understand that one. Discuss
1: balance of education versus action in context of overcoming fear.
0: I don't think there's a balance to be made. They're just two separate things that both need to be simultaneously done. You know, education... um, I mean, that, that provides you the tools of what to do. Like, you can't take action if you don't know what the fuck to do. You know what I mean? So I guess... Education is a prerequisite for action. I think education... There you go. You know what I, I mean? Well,
1: I think education is taking action.
0: It is. Part of it is. Yeah. yeah, that's that's step one in the action. Yeah. And then when we talk about executing whatever you're trying to accomplish, it comes after the education. Totally. Otherwise, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Yeah. Right? So I think education to me, it is step one of the action, but it's also the prerequisite to the execution or the big action being taken. Um So there's no balance to be had. It's just like that's step one. And then... um taking action is, is just, it it really, it's a mental hurdle that you have to get over. Right. And a lot of times I think for most people, yeah, you should be reading things on this. You should be like, I I really value stuff like Tim Grover's book. Uh, uh, who's the guy the dichotomy of leadership and, uh, Jocko willing, a lot of these guys, like, you know, Jocko's a little bit more Tim, not so much, but Sounds like Jocko, so what? Jocko has some specific tactics about being a leader. Mm. Um, Tim Grover does have tactics, but a lot of it is, I mean, it's th- what makes these people relentless. It's just a personality, mm. right? And so what I think I get or out of mentality. those- Mentality, yeah, that's that's a better word for it. And what I get out of it is reading about these people who are relentless or who are winning for a second book. It just kind of like, one, gives me approval to be relentless, and two, it just fires me up to just take action, you know what I mean? So there's no like- people read it and it's like, oh, what were like the, the strategies you got from that book? I didn't get anything. I just read about how Kobe and Michael Jordan are fucking savages and they just relentlessly take action, which humanizes success. So I look at it like, damn, well, I could be that. I actually wrote a newsletter for Sunday and I talked about Michael, Kobe, George, uh, Tiger Woods, all these phenoms in sports. And it's like, they weren't like born with that, with this basketball gene, right? Maybe they were born into a family around and stuff like that, but all of them just, they worked their fucking ass off. Like, so all of them at one point probably doubted themselves, probably had lack of belief, but had to shift and choose to just, I'm just going to do this and tell am the best. Yeah. Right. So if we minimize that to losing 20 pounds, it becomes a hell of a lot easier, but you just got to choose to take action on losing weight and choose that I'm going to spend the next six months really focusing on my health, which is a small part of your life. People think it's a long time and it does feel like a long time, but realistically it goes by like this once it's done. Um, so separating the two or balancing the two, I don't think there's a balance to be had. They, they gotta be simultaneous. You, you don't know where or what to take action on if you don't have the education prior of what to do or the blueprint. So that's kind of your prerequisite. And then taking action is just, once you learn what to do, it's just fucking doing it yeah. and, and not, not letting yourself talk yourself out of it. And if you gotta read or listen or watch motivational shit to do it, do it. I think the most powerful uh, types of those things are stories about other people though because there's a lot of motivational gurus that talk about like, you know, just, just believing in yourself and do this. And then you kind of look at them and you're like, well, what examples do you have for me besides your ability to think this way? Yeah. Which is great. But like, that's way easier said than done. Tim Grover at least goes, here's a story about Dwayne Wade. This is what he did. Here's a story about Kobe. Here's what he did, you know, and I don't even like basketball, but being able to see people do shit. Right. And then his newer book, he talks about some business professionals he works with, which is cool. But I want to hear about people, right? It's the same reason why, like, when we do case studies for reverse dieting on the website, like, they do really well because people are like, oh, shit, I can see this person going through a reverse diet and what that's like. So finding those stories to help you with that. But I think that answers the question. I don't think there's necessarily a balance. Totally.
1: Cool. All right. We'll go to the next one. It goes from
0: 30 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Let's go. Great fucking question. What was her name again? Carrie Hines. Carrie. Great question.
1: All right, we're going to go to the next one. It's from Anonymous. This says, could you touch on the structure and periodization of taking someone who has 30, 40, 50 pounds to lose and how to structure that in a timeline versus someone who's trying to get a little bit leaner?
0: Do they say nutrition or training or just periodization in general?
1: The structure of periodization.
0: Okay, I'm going to assume nutrition because we're talking fat loss, but I'll touch on training real quick. Um... I don't think the periodization for training needs to be crazy. So uh, periodization originally was more uh, block style regardless of what your goal was. And what that means is block periodization is where you have blocks of time. So you might have a four, six, or eight-week block and usually it's accumulation, intensification, realization is like the terms for it. But you spend a certain amount of time for accumulation, which is hypertrophy, basically. High volumes, you're trying to build muscle, um, recruit muscle fiber, just increase total volume. Then you go into intensification, which means all the volume drops, intensity goes up. So loads are higher, volume's ho- lower, and you're doing heavier stuff. And then realization is like you're testing 1RMs, you're doing explosive work, power, st- super low rep strength stuff. Um, and then you come back. Hypertrophy. I don't like that for the average person because I spend so much time doing strength and power, which is very closely tied that by the time I come back to hypertrophy, it's like relearning the curve, especially yeah. for a, a newbie um, or anybody who's just not ta- is not doing this as a sport. Um, concurrent and undulating periodization is way better in my opinion for the everyday person. And this is basically meaning like if you're training four days a week, you have a a high rep day and a lower rep day. So a strength and hypertrophy day every week, you don't have to cycle through those. You can do this for months and months and months and months on end. As long as you're changing exercises, every block you're, you're making sure you're hitting new PRs, So you're progressing as you go, whether that's in the eight or 10 or six or five rep range, doesn't matter or doing it per session so instead of having a low rep and a high rep this is this is how i like to do it personally because it allows you to have the best both worlds in every session but like um, yesterday was upper body day so we had uh overhead press and weighted chin-ups and we were doing like five reps so low reps heavy weight then we moved into uh some push and pull in the six to eight rep range still pretty low but a little bit higher and then we moved into like 12 15 and 20 rep range stuff right so you're from the start to finish of a session you're going from strength to hypertrophy to really metabolic training right fatigue lactate threshold stuff like that Um, and you can do that every session right Uh, and it's fun because you get to lift heavy and you get a pump every session right leg day heavy squats followed by moderately heavy rdls followed by super high rep leg extensions and curls and stuff like that and then maybe you go into sled work which is predominantly uh, metabolic fatigue Um, that's how i would train this person throughout the whole thing for nutrition the periodization model you know, there, there's two sides of this coin. Number one is adherence. So periodization for gen pop. One of the most important things about periodization for gen pop is periodizing the plan in order for them to better adhere throughout the calendar year. So when we look at this person who wants to lose 30, 40, 50 pounds, we're going to look at a year scale because even if we're losing a healthy rate of loss, 0.5 to 1% of total body weight per week, we're still probably going to extend, you know, out pretty far, at least six months, if not more. And that's at a healthy, steady rate of loss. It's not a slow or a fast journey. It's a slow, sustainable one. Um, now looking at this calendar year, where are the holidays? What do they do for the holidays? You know, like I have some clients that Thanksgiving is like, Oh yeah, we have dinner and it's over. Like, I don't really care about Thanksgiving. And then I have some clients that I've already talked to that are like, they talked to me like a couple months ago. I'm taking, I'd like Thanksgiving is a week event. Like I'm, off the grid we travel we have different families it's like a big deal yeah same thing with christmas some people are like i don't celebrate christmas some people it's it's like oh it's just you know christmas morning it's not a big deal i'm not big into that and some people it's like you know for me it's like a three-day event yeah and then the next week and after that is another event because all families are divorced and we have christmas eve is a big deal christmas morning is a big deal and then we also got the other family to celebrate christmas with so now it's like this is a whole week you know okay periodized diet breaks into those periods of time because we have to account for those which means that we may have to speed up the deficit coming into the the, the winter essentially because we go okay even halloween do yeah. you have kids because halloween before i had blakely was like if my friends have a halloween party maybe get some drinks but it's nothing like yeah i'm not eating candy or anything yeah now blakely wants me to eat candy with her now we take her from door to door and it's actually dope we're gonna do an in sack this year but usually there's like a car, like somebody has like a carport like tent in their driveway and they're giving parents drinks Mm -hmm. they do it i don't know if they set up in the facebook group but like it was like every so many blocks there'd be one wow so you'd be walking it's like time for another drink and it's like uh and and uh coffee or it's like one of them had like apple cider fireball like it's dope that's awesome so if you want to come trick-or-treating yeah (laughs) you know you don't have a kid you can come but uh now Halloween's a thing. So it's like, okay, well, I'm gonna have like a, a short diet break for Halloween, a medium one for uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. So that means by the time we get to that winter, it's gotta be like a three week on, one week off split or else I'm gonna fall off the diet. Yeah. We gotta account for that leading into that. So a lot of the gem pop periodization is also going to come down to just the calendar year, what social events they have. Do they have birthdays? Do they have work trips? Do they have anniversaries? All those kind of things. Let's get them on the calendar. And then the other side of it is going to be, um, a mixture of adherence because a big part of it is like we know that from from a lot of the literature, a lot of diet break research is basically showing it's mainly psychological. Um, there are some performance and recovery benefits to it. Um, there's not much information on stress management. I would, I would venture out to say that there is a physiological benefit to diet breaks from a cortisol perspective because as we're dieting, thyroid declines, cortisol increases, you know, training hard, cortisol is increasing carbs and more calories in general are going to lower cortisol and stress response to dieting, to training, I got to imagine that it's a good use. If, if it's not going to fuel fat loss directly right there, long term, it's probably going to manage cortisol and stress levels better. And that may lead to more sustainable fat loss because even if we manage cortisol better during a diet, the post diet phase is easier from a sustainability perspective because psychologically speaking, you're not as taxed from the diet you were just in right? Because you're not stressed. You manage the stress better. It's going to be easier to reverse diet because you're not like dying to get out of the the deficit. Um, so there's that aspect. I would also say that, and I've asked Brandon about this because one question I had after I've looked in and you know, this I've dug into so much diet break research because we were huge on it. And then it was just like more and more kept coming out. And, uh, a lot of it's psychological, but my question to him is like, well, how long does it take for metabolic adaptation to actually kick in? you know, you're in a deficit, how long until metabolic adaptation is officially like, okay, we're starting to see these diet fatigue signals popping up, maybe the thyroid, the cortisol, testosterone for men, um, uh, neat BMR changing to your maintenance calories, your, your ability to lose weight slows down because you're adapting to the deficit. How long does that take? He told me three weeks, he was like, on average, it starts kicking in at three weeks. So then my question was like, how many research studies are there using diet breaks or testing diet breaks, that actually have a diet break for three weeks or more? And the answer was one, I think. I wow. think there was one. There wasn't enough for him or I to say that like diet breaks longer than three or four weeks could reverse these metabolic adaptation effects. Because right now, all we know is that diet breaks are mainly psychological, and at best, they pause metabolic adaptation. But if I'm pausing metabolic adaptation, that's great. But I'm also pausing fat loss. Yeah. So Because you're not in a deficit anymore. Which means unless you take a diet break and you just fucking go way harder and everything you do in your burn more calories. But then technically, if we look at the calorie equation, you're not really getting the benefits from, from the uh, diet break anyway, because you're pushing intensity up. You might get some psychological benefits there, but knowing this, I'm like, well, okay, if we just pause it, that also makes the diet long-term like longer. So a 12 week diet with four diet breaks becomes a 20 week diet. So yeah, you pause metabolic adaptation, but you're in a deficit for 20 weeks now. So you didn't really do much in the long term. However, if we took a four week maybe even a six-week diet break, would we reverse some of these symptoms? If it takes three weeks to create metabolic adaptation, I'm assuming it's going to take three weeks or more to start reversing some of the symptoms of metabolic adaptation. So what I've seen natural bodybuilders do, um, and I've done with some Gen Pop clients that works really well, and this is what I would probably do in this scenario, if I, if I could control everything, and obviously, again, part of this is adherence. So if, if they can adhere to it, I would. But based on what we know with diet breaks and what I've learned about just the physiology of humans and dieting and and what I've seen and experienced, I would probably take this person through an eight to 12 week diet with no diet breaks, maybe a single day refeed. If they have a social event going on, we need to make some room for flexibility. Then I would take a four to six week diet break where we're at maintenance. And then I would jump back into the deficit. So now we do look at like, well, shit, we're dieting for at least six to eight months, if not longer. However, if I have somebody that wants to lose 30 to 50 pounds and they commit to a year, which is not uncommon, you got a lot of weight to lose. Why wouldn't we take a year doing it the right way? implement these diet breaks in so we can mitigate and manage metabolic adaptation most optimally and get you to a result by the end of the year that you are way leaner and you are actually able to sustain the diet because we took those long, or I'm sorry, sustain the result you achieved because we took those longer diet breaks. So the way I would periodize it, perfect world scenario, eight to 12 week diet, uh, at least three, but ideally four to six week diet break, rinse and repeat two to three times to try to get them to their result. So that eight to 12 weeks is a little more aggressive. We are pushing it pretty hard, um, but it's only eight to 12 weeks, right? And they know that they're not getting to their final destination at the end of that eight to 12 weeks. So it's like, hey, we're, we're gonna go hard for eight to 12 weeks. Whether you get done and you have 10 more pounds or 20 more pounds to lose, doesn't matter. We're pushing for this long. We're gonna take a solid break and then we're gonna get back in it. So they don't get to the end of it frustrated. They're like, okay, this is just my pit stop going to refresh and then I'm going to jump back into it in a couple months and we're going to go after it again. Yeah. And I think that's a better sustainability approach. Totally. So, but you need a lot of buy-in at the front end. Yeah. So that's a long period of time.
1: Okay. Another one comes from anonymous. that says, I'd love to hear uh, about how you structure a client's nutrition who does CrossFit that you're looking to be competitive.
0: I think sometimes people overthink this. So, there's two, there's two sides here. One side I really can't break down because it's so individual and I'll explain why. And then the other side is just high protein, high carb, moderate to low fat. Um, and moderate to low fat is all based on the caloric intake. So I don't mean moderate to low fat as in based on their body weight, which is typical for body composition. But if I'm looking at somebody for performance, it's about caloric intake because somebody who is 120 pounds competing in CrossFit uh, could burn as many calories as somebody who is 200 pounds trying to lose weight. Because their energy expenditure is through the roof. A lot of times they train twice a day because they have to. Um, they're doing a lot of aerobic training on top of anaerobic and power lift. Like just so much. So for that person, let's say they're 120 pounds. Bare minimum low fat would be, I mean, 30 grams. 30 to 40 grams is like a – is considered like safe low-fat diet for that person um, on a diet. But moderate to low-fat for their caloric intake could be like 70 to 80 because their calories are at 3,000 to 4,000 depending on how, many, how much they burn. Regardless – Majority of their diet is still going to be protein and carbs. They're going to run through fuel way faster than anybody else. Every single meal is going to have carbs. Um, it's it's going to be a higher carb approach. A lot of I'm going to focus a lot on easily digestible foods because there's so much stress being placed on the body. And if they're doing two a days, uh, their body is is sending blood flow to the limbs pretty consistently because they're moving, they're training, they're in sympathetic nervous system state. Your body actually has to be in parasympathetic state to properly digest food. And if somebody's trained twice a day and they're a high-intensity athlete, it's, it's already hard enough to get them into that parasympathetic state, let alone they're, they're pulling themselves back out of it multiple yeah. times a day. So for that individual, I'm incorporating breathing drills post-workout without a doubt to bring them back down. And then I'm using easily digestible nutrients and making that a big focus because I already know that there's a potential stress-inflicting uh, digestive issue going to be happening. Not always, but sometimes there is. So I want easily digestible foods. It's also why I would like, you know, some people are against intra-workout carbs or highly branched dextrin powdered carbs. I'm all for it with these kind of athletes, even if it's after. Sometimes I don't like them drinking it during because if we manage cortisol during a training session, when we're supposed to be explosive and powerful and going like nonstop, I almost want cortisol higher because then adrenaline and epinephrine in the body is high and you're like, going peaking exactly use that stress response to train harder and then post-workout chug down highly branched the with some whey protein so you get the protein you get the carb right away that's going to start bringing you into that parasympathetic state your body doesn't have to digest those nutrients because they're already broken down for you it's that's why it's a shake and then you go into a breathing drill and then an hour or so later you have your actual post-workout meal where we have white rice and meat and maybe a little veg and fruit and like a full balanced meal. Um, but regardless, I'm doing that kind of stuff and, uh, and, and, easily digestible nutrients. And that's the, the part two that's very individual. It's like, what do they weigh? What's their height? What kind of training do they do? Define competitive. Like, are they competing here locally and, you know, we're in Pierce County. So in Pierce County, or are they uh, competing in the Northwest or are they competing in the U S yeah. you know what I mean? There's different scales of this. Are they training once a day, twice a day? Um, sometimes three times a day, yeah. depending on what they're Jeez. doing. And I shouldn't even say training. Cause some people it's like morning training and PM training, but in the middle of the day, they're doing like mobility and sauna. Well, mobility and stretching and sauna can still be a stress. You're still applying a stress. It's not the same. It's a but serious it's, athlete. It is like, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you look at like Matt Frazier before he retired, like his, that, that was his routine. Yeah. Train in the morning and then he would do mobility and sauna. We're talking about Matt Frazier then. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So define the competitive athlete, okay. you know, because Matt Frazier is the best, don't get me wrong. But there's also people who were at the CrossFit Games who weren't even really, nobody knows them by name because they were dead last, but they're still top 100 in the entire world. Very true. So they still train like Matt. They're just yep. not Matt, yep. you know? And mind you, Matt was training in the Olympic Center when he was like 13, doing Olympic lifting. Yeah. Olympic lifting is the most skill dominant aspect of CrossFit. So if you take the most difficult thing that requires the most skill, and you you bring in a guy who's doing it since he was a fucking preteen, yeah, of course he's gonna be amazing. He just had to work on conditioning, which is just work, yeah, you know. But um, but point being, and there's probably more to it. I'm not like a CrossFit head, but um, but there's that kind of athlete, right? There's also um I know people that don't compete in CrossFit that do like doing two days and even if one of the sessions is hot yoga or it's mobility in sauna or whatever um but that's a stress. I yeah. mean a sauna alone is a stress. It's a very good stress and it's extremely good for you. That's why I want one here so bad. The more I study it, dude, it's like we're going to add like 5 years to our life. Yeah. Not really, but maybe. Um point being is uh I don't think I can break that down because it's so individual to that person, you know. They're definitely going to be uh, at least at maintenance, if not in a surplus, Um, but I think most athletes are actually better off at maintenance because we don't want to gain weight necessarily, you know, unless you need to gain weight in your off season for your sport, which does happen. um, Most of the time you're going to be at maintenance and that's going to shift throughout the year. That's the periodization that happens throughout the year. If we know like, okay. We're going into preseason. You actually need to cut some weight for your gymnastics if you're a crossfitter. Or, hey, you're too small. We need to gain weight in your offseason before we get into preseason start conditioning at that weight again or getting used to conditioning at, or uh, gymnastics and bodyweight movements at that weight. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's so individual. I really can't say. Um, the thing I would say is most, uh, most athletes should be at maintenance, and it should be a range. So um, no athlete is burning the same amount of calories every single day. Um, no human is. I was going to say, yeah. At all. The reason static uh, caloric and macronutrient uh, targets work really well for the everyday person trying to lose weight is because we're trying to lose weight. So we want to put you in a deficit, right? So if one day you burn a little bit more calories, cool. Don't adjust your calories for that. You're just going to lose a little bit extra weight this, this day. And then tomorrow you don't burn as much. That's okay because you burned more yesterday. So we keep that static. But with athletes, and I even have somebody that I work with that um, – she was actually just at the CrossFit game. So she did compete and she's at this level. And with her, we have ranges. Like, mm-hmm. And we're separating her carbs by like 50 to 75 grams a day. Fats by 10 to 20 a day. Protein by like 50. So she can kind of stay in these ranges. And when she's hungry, it's because she's burning. Totally. So it's like, hey, if you need to go a little over, uh, a little on the higher end of the range for all of your calories, do it. If you, need to, like, if you notice that you're consistently staying in the higher range for carbs, we're just going to bump that range up. But instead of me saying... 500 grams of carbs it's 475 to 550 Mm. you know we have this range it's like i need you at least getting this many carbs but you can float up if you need to you know your body at this point you're a professional crossfitter like you know so um my tips for this one is is uh periodization depends on the person uh the individual diet depends on the timing of the day they're training and how often they're training but i would say ranges work best for these kind of people keeping you around maintenance uh, so you're not gaining or losing and then uh usually it's always high carb by protein
1: yeah that's good yeah all right, cool. Um, we will go to a different kind of question. It says, "As a new trainer, what should I be doing in the gym on my shift to get new clients?"
0: So uh, there's a few things. Um, number one, fucking talk to people. Go say what's up. Yeah. Just hey, I'm like I haven't seen you. What's your name? How's it going? You know what I mean? Like I know it sounds weird, and that's uncomfortable for some people.
1: And well, it shouldn't be if you're an in-person trainer. Yeah, it
0: really shouldn't be, but. You know, some people will get uncomfortable if you do it, but that's fine. Just don't make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Be fucking nice. Just be, and sometimes it's like, like don't come to them mid set. They got a bar on their back. Don't fucking go up to them. But if they're sitting down, they just got done squat, like walk up and be like, yo, like well done, man. That's a lot of weight. Dap them, walk away. Yeah. Don't sit there and try to talk. Cause then it looks like you're trying to sell. Yeah. Just show them your face. What up? Cody, dude, you're killing it keep going and just walk off, you know, next week, do the same thing again. Yep. Week after that, maybe give them a tip, you know, you got to plant the seed and just let it grow. So I think like the, the reality is, especially at a, at a public gym, the people that come in, they're going to keep coming in, you know, the faces that keep showing up. So you don't need to be in a hurry for this plan for six weeks to build a relationship once a week, maybe twice, say what's up, tell them they're doing great. Give them a tip here and there. Um, eventually try to have a full conversation with them. And then eventually you can try to sell them. But I think, and, and you got to remember, don't just sell people, just sell people, sell people who need help, you know, offer help first. And then if they, they bite onto it, go for it. Because I'm not going to go up to the dude that's probably better at lifting than me and try to sell them on something, yeah. you know, like go up to the person that like, you've already established some, some rapport with, cause you've said what's up, you've said things to them. And then, you know, they could use some help because you see their form, you see them rounding, you see them, the, they've been deadlifting the same weight for four weeks straight. And you could say like, Hey, like I have noticed you haven't lifted added any weight so I'm just curious like one are you following a program and two can I give you some tips to progress over that 200 pounds that you've been lifting Cause I know you've been stuck there yeah. and then you can hear them say like man dude I've been stuck here forever I don't know what to do give them tips show them what to do give them a free program do something to like leave them with and then follow up with them in a week or two totally how's everything going you know um
1: so you're talking like a public like LA fitness yeah
0: okay I'm assuming um if you worked at a gym like I did it's it's a little bit different uh but even then there's a lot of people who who did like the um team training so like the boot camp style classes That's what I'm saying
1: like I can, I just I can vouch for that because the people that only did you know group group training yeah you would do the exact same thing uh yeah. to them just be like always making them feel welcome and then, yeah yeah
0: Eventually, they people would like, think about doing yeah.
1: more. They were like, man, I want to work with that guy. Yeah. The other ones haven't even looked at me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah
0: I was always going in, up there in between sessions. Or even if like, because the reality is, is, a lot of trainers don't realize this, people don't want you hovering over them. Yeah. So if somebody's doing a squat, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, two more. Yeah, yeah, yeah one more rep. Yeah, yeah, you're doing good. Let's get another. And I'm just constantly in their face. They're like, it's kind of annoying, honestly. Yeah, I, I was the type that's like, get them set up, spot them if they need it. Like, I'm going to throw a few, th- three or four cues at them. If it's not an exercise they need a spot keep going. I'm moving on to the next person. Cause I was training multiple people at a time. So it's just like that whole praise, correct praise thing. Yeah. You're killing it. Here's how you can improve. Keep fucking going. You're doing a great job, you know, boom, move to the next person. And in between those walk up to the group thing and be like, dude, you are crushing it out of here. I see you like saying stuff to them. Let me know if you need tips, blah, blah, blah. Um, and even offering when I, every once in a while when I'd fill in for a, a group session, letting people know like, yo, if you ever have a question, nutrition, come up, ask me, I'm always here. I'm always happy to talk, you know, let them come get free value from you. Um, A lot of those people who, when they were like, you know what? I think I want to take shit to the next level. They sought me out because I was, like you said, the one that was talking to them. Um, It's just being friendly, man.
1: Yeah. And I'm also thinking, especially at that gym, well, even, even LA, but like, no matter what, if they're walking through that door, they're paying to be there. So Mm -hmm. treat them like they're just like your personal client. Yeah. You know what I mean? Doesn't matter if they're paying you an extra couple hundred bucks, they're paying to be in that building, you know make them feel like they are part of it. You yeah. Know what I mean? And I think that making them feel a part of it will lead to training yeah.
0: 100%. with you. hundred percent. I think especially in those kinds of gyms where if people are paying over a hundred bucks a month to, to, for a gym membership, um, and we had a lot of people that were paying way over that, way but, over that yeah. but let's just say a hundred bucks minimum because there's some CrossFit gyms that are a little bit cheaper. But nonetheless, if a hundred bucks a month is coming out of your pocket, how would you want to be treated? Yeah. Period. You know, I, I, uh, I, I talked about this a little bit on the podcast we just recorded about uh, what makes us great, essentially, yeah. and it's like every interaction, every email, every call should be an experience, yeah. right? If I'm paying this person to coach me, how do I want to be treated? Yeah. Like, what kind of response do I want to get, you know? And we've heard everything from people that have gone through uh, companies and coaches that don't put as much of an emphasis on this point. And it's crazy to hear, you know. It's like, damn, like you really kind of felt let down because it was so minimal. Like, you don't want that on your back. So, so be the person that goes above and beyond because it always pays off.
1: Yeah, especially if you're, like you said, if you're paying a hundred bucks a month to be there, you could. Some people, or sometimes you could pay twenty five bucks a month to go to an Anytime Fitness, and the people at the front desk are just loving to be there, yeah. nice to you. But why not just go here? Yeah, you know what I mean. Exactly. So don't let them want to do that. Yeah, hundred you know? percent. Absolutely. So, should we do one more? Yeah, let's do one more. All right, here we go. Uh, we got one from uh, Jen. Uh, that's about the same question. All right, this is a long one. Okay, Ashley Abenor. asks this on IG as well, but probably easier answered here. Are there risks to consider when a female is fasting for 20, 20 plus hours a day? Or no no twenty hours a day every day and only eating a single meal. Aside from under eating, are there hormonal issues that can rise from not eating for that long? Do you have any articles or blogs I can use to educate myself on the matter?
0: No, I do not uh, because there's just not that much evidence on it. So, um, and this is what makes this one hard. I'm gonna I'm gonna give my personal opinion, which is purely anecdotal from my experience, and also theory from indirect research and literature I've studied, right? So I want to make that clear. This is not anything backed up by evidence because there's just no the only research I know of that really looked at a lot of like there's some research on 20 plus hour fasting and I don't even think I don't even know if there's anything on daily 20 hour fast. There's ones on daily 16 hour fast and there's ones on like weekly 24 hour fast, but I they're usually mixed gender. There's no, they're not looking at hormones. They're more looking at like detoxification, health markers, cholesterol, all that stuff. Um, and then we also have to consider how long it is. So uh, I believe we, uh, we did one in a research review and it wasn't a long study. Eight weeks max, but I think it was like a four week study. Like nothing crazy. So they're more looking at temporary short-term stuff. Like if I do this 20-hour fast tomorrow when we do blood work, what are we going to see? Are we going to see improvements in triglycerides, uh, autophagy, all those kind of things that they're always trying to look at? much of which happened because of a calorie deficit anyway. um, But what I would say based on what I know from my experience and what I think from just understanding female hormones and stuff like that, um, I think there are, I think you are running a risk. Uh, Number one, 20 hours is a long period of time. That's a high level of stress. I think fasting 16 hours or less can be beneficial depending on the person Um, and it usually is beneficial from a productivity perspective. I'm not even talking about a health perspective. Yeah. I think it can be a consequence. This is partially why I push out breakfast a little bit. Usually it's it's like 12 hours for me because I eat my last meal at like 9.30 p.m. So if I go till 9.30 that's only 12 hours of not eating, which isn't that crazy, realistically. Um, that's like if you finish dinner at 7, you eat at 7 in the morning. That's normal. That should be normal, right? That's good for digestion. It's not that stressful. But it also, I wake up early enough to where I can get a few hours of work done while fasting. And that's the point here. So you can push that upwards of 14, 16 hours maybe because y- you're, you're going to be riding on a little bit of a cortisol wave, um, epinephrine and adrenaline and, and um, being more awake, uh, being more alert, If you're really lean and you do this often, maybe having some ketones present, um, iffy, but intermittent fasting has shown to be a form of getting into ketosis, Um, not like following a ketogenic diet. But if you're doing it for productivity and stuff, I don't see anything wrong with it as long as you manage it well. Now, if you're doing it for 20 hours, you're only eating one meal a day, you're not managing it well because, you know, doing it for 12 to 16 still allows you to have two or three meals. So you can kind of manage that stress response. You're probably not getting enough calories. If you're only eating one meal a day, if you're only eating one meal a day and you're getting enough calories, you're having such a large meal. You're adding a digestive stress because trying to digest a thousand to 2000 calorie meal is just hard, It's hard on your body. It's hard yeah. on your gut. Um, I don't think you're going to get as much out of your nutrition. I don't, you're not going to maximize muscle protein synthesis cause you just have one bolus, which does put a lot of protein in the bloodstream and technically you can, but here's the thing is as a 170 pound individual, I would have to have 170 to hundred to 200 grams of protein. Well, really 150 to 200 grams of protein in a single meal, like for myself to have enough protein to maximize muscle protein synthesis. However, number one, that is very hard to do from an adherence perspective. I had a, I had a fucking like eight ounce steak last night, eight or nine ounce steak, right? And it was probably like 50, 60 grams of protein mm-hmm. realistically. Eh, maybe even like 40, 40, 50, let's say. Okay, that's five of those? Damn. Four of those are 160 grams. So yeah. let's say I cut it short for protein. I get less than I do now. Four fucking eight-ounce tanks in a single meal? Get out of here.
1: 150.
0: If I don't do that, I got to drink, what, four protein shakes? Yeah. Like, just to get 100 grams because a protein shake is 25 grams. So it's like you're you're doing yourself a disservice because you're guaranteed to not get enough protein. And even if you do, the way protein works is you get it in, in doses so that you can keep getting amino acids in the bloodstream. If you have one large sitting, you can so what happens is your your body won't just excrete it. Your body will store the protein in the gut and then as it needs it, it'll disperse it. So technically we could get away with this. And this is where like science shows, well you technically don't need these feedings But if you have 200 grams of protein just sitting in your gut and then every few hours it's kind of like just like slowly leaking out amino acids into the bloodstream and the muscle tissue, you will recover. However, 200 grams of protein sitting in your gut leaves you bloated all fucking day, bloated and gassy, in pain. By the time it's starting to finally go away because you used all the protein, you got to eat another 200-gram meal. Like that's stupid. So I think that's an issue. And then on top of that… There is a lot of research that that kind of points to the idea that female hormones are just more sensitive. And one of the reasons that uh, amenorrhea and reds and all these things are more common with them is because of this. So one of the things to avoid those and to help fix those and even um, what is recommended by some specialists for um, like thyroid, like hypothyroidism and stuff like that is actually more frequent feedings throughout the day. So you're just kind of constantly giving your body nutrients because it's easier on the digestion, easier on the body, and it's more beneficial for hormones. So having one feeding takes away this idea of, of being able to positively benefit your hormones by having three to five meals a day where you're just kind of slowly getting nutrients totally. throughout the day. So there's no hard evidence on it, but my experience and what I know about other research that would kind of educate me on just the, the back-end theories behind this, I would say, yeah, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. It's sure. probably not good.
1: Yeah. So. Cool. All right. That was the last question for this episode. So is there any announcements? Or-
0: um, I don't think so, man. That was a really good. You know, a lot of in-depth questions. I love it. So as always, guys, if you like this podcast, leave us a five-star rating review. Share it with a friend on your story or via text or however you want to do it. Um, And make sure you ask us questions and jump in the Facebook group. You can do both of those in the description of this podcast. Uh, We want to hear back from you so we can keep creating this uh, better and better for you.